Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Richard Bleicher. He is the director of the Breast Fellowship Training Program at Fox Chase Cancer Center. He is a breast surgeon. We're going to talk a lot about breast cancer, treatments for breast cancer, and in addition to that, procedures and maybe the way we as clinicians, as family docs, primary care providers, should approach our patients in 2017 and beyond. So first of all, I really want to welcome you to the program, and thanks for taking your time to join us, Dr. Bleicher. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you. My first question, as a surgeon, especially when you're operating on any surgeries, serious, but breast surgery can be very personal. It can be life-altering. There's so many issues in addition to dealing with cancer. Your approach to patients at the bedside, when you're talking to them, for those of us who are in similar situations dealing with patients, how do you advise chatting and talking and explaining situations to patients in these situations? Well, I think that one of the first things that needs to be understood is that every patient that comes to you with a diagnosis of cancer is absolutely terrified. And so one of the most important things that will not only probably get you better information from the patient, but will also facilitate the relationship and allow communication in terms of their desires, you got to pull them off the ceiling and you have to explain to them that Well, breast cancer is a situation that should not be delayed in terms of its treatment. It certainly is not something that is an emergency like so many people have felt. So what do I mean by that? We actually took a look at patients in the United States, and we looked at two large databases of about 100,000 women apiece. And while many people think that if you have a delay while you work up the patient of a matter of weeks, it brings down their overall survival significantly, Actually, we found that a delay of three months until their first treatment, specifically their surgery, actually only brought down their overall survival by about 3%. So what does that tell us? It tells us as clinicians that when we get to see that patient, we need to dot every I and cross every T and have a thorough understanding of what those patients' priorities and desires are. It's important to get them to treatment quickly, but it's not so important that we shouldn't complete the workup and try to really make them understand that a thorough evaluation will serve them best in the long run and not to rush off to treatment. And when you're doing this, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I know, you know, most of us in medicine, we think things out, but we like to act right away. But in a case like this, when you say a potential 3% decrease, you could do so much damage in those three months if you don't make the right choices. It could be a lot higher than 3%, I'm sure, if you don't really research it and, and figure out what the best option for the patient in front of you is. Absolutely. And so that's why it's important to really have a thorough understanding of what the patient's options are based upon her history or her desires. And so as you work through that with the patient and you complete the workup, you need to make sure that you're, like I said, covering all the specifics. So for instance, if a patient comes to you after having a biopsy on the outside, and let's say they've had multiple biopsies, and one she tells you is quote-unquote benign but doesn't know what it is, there may be some validity into taking a step back, trying to get reports, trying to get slides reviewed. A lot of those details that you want to double check can be very important in terms of really completing a thorough evaluation of the patient and making sure that nothing is missed, even though that may take a couple of weeks longer. I think what you say is actually very good advice to to find things out. And I guess for patients as well, if they want to seek a second opinion or they shouldn't just be rushing, oh my gosh, I can't get an opinion, I'll just go with the first, they need to feel comfortable as well. That's very true. And as you do this with patients, when a patient comes to you and they are really like clinging to the ceiling because they've got this diagnosis and they think that their life is going to end, as you have that discussion with the patient and as you reassure them that 
we will take care of this thoroughly and we will do it in an expeditious fashion, but we don't need to rush and cut corners. As you sort of bring them down and as you have that thorough conversation and you reassure the patient about that, a lot of that relationship will develop rather quickly. It not only endears the patient to you, but it makes them feel very comfortable. And actually, it's something that I think serves their best interest because they can then think clearer and they can actually give you better information and a clearer picture of what their priorities are. Dr. Richard Bleicher is the director of the Breast Fellowship Training Program at Fox Chase Cancer Center. He's joining us. We're talking about breast cancer, its detection treatment. It's interesting. I know from 20 years of television, went to Fox Chase many, many times. Early on, Fox Chase was one of the first cancer centers to really look at the environment inside and outside. Beautiful views, patients' rooms, they're, they're able to look out to a lawns and trees and those things. That takes a very important role in, in cancer as well, isn't it? The fact that you can kind of feel a little more comfortable and maybe it's not so sterile. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that there is correlation in the literature between stress and recurrences. And so the environment that you're in, whether it's the natural beauty of being outdoors or the ability to relax as you're going through this process, or whether it's the environment indoors with your physician and how stressed you feel in the company of your provider, all of those things are actually going to make a huge difference, not only in the patient's comfort and their ability to have a good working relationship with you as a physician, but they're really also important in terms of the patient's ability to move through their treatment, heal well, and actually the literature even suggests prevent or lower the risk of recurrences in the future. I also remember you used to have, I don't know if you still do, but they had like a cookies at three, between three and four. You could always come by and grab some <laughs> cookies. I don't know if that's still there, but that was a nice little feature the hospital had for, for visitors it, and it patients. Is, it is true. We have a we have tea time at 3.30 every day. The purpose of that is to actually get the clinical staff and the basic science staff together in one room. Food always does that for everybody. And so the people can actually collaborate, discuss, and help to move translational research forward. So a reporter looking for a free snack also gets it as well. <laughs> so I remember those days. That's but, right. but, but But more importantly, far more importantly, I do want to talk about surgery and where we are now as far as breast cancer and treatments. I mean, there have been incredible developments. Tell me a little bit about what you see as maybe two or three of the biggest things that you have seen in breast cancer surgery and treatment. So one of them is related to actually how we do breast procedures now. And we've gone from the radical mastectomy, which involves removing all three levels of lymph nodes and pectoral muscles, to skin-sparing mastectomies and even nipple-sparing mastectomies, where we're leaving the skin envelope and taking either the nipple and the areola, leaving all of that skin for an excellent cosmetic result. Or in some cases where it's deemed appropriate, we may be actually even leaving the nipple and areola to really give an optimal appearance while removing the breast tissue and filling it in with a reconstruction. That's probably one of the biggest paradigm shifts we've had. Another one is related to how we're changing the management of the axilla. So we used to do axillary dissections. That subsequently changed to doing seminal node biopsies. Seminal node biopsies have now actually no longer dictated in every case whether or not a patient gets an axillary dissection. So what do I mean by that? We now have prospective data from the American College of Surgeons Oncology Group, Z11 trial, demonstrating if the patient has low-volume disease and certain clinical features, they actually don't need that full axillary dissection if they have just low-volume disease in the axilla. That's been a huge boon for patients because what it does is it spares them, in many cases, that additional axillary dissection and the risk of lymphedema associated with it. 
these things have made a huge difference in the morbidity of the patient and also in the cosmetic outcome. And so we really have made steps forward, even though some people do think still that we really haven't traveled much in terms of outcomes in breast cancer. That is interesting how in just a short period of time, essentially, the advances there are. When you talk about the surgical approach and you're teaching your fellows and you're working with them, right now, what is the thought about prophylactic mastectomies? For instance, if somebody has BRCA gene or they're at risk, I know a lot of attention, Angelina Jolie brought that up and certainly was very courageous and also expressed to women that this could be done. Is that something that has gained momentum? Is that something that you recommend in those cases as well? There's two settings in which prophylactic mastectomies are performed. One is the one in which you mentioned, Brian, which is related to patients who have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer. In those cases, bilateral mastectomies for prevention are frequently performed. It's not the only option, however, because one can monitor those patients safely using mammography and MRI alternating in six months. Those are for instance, NCCM guidelines. But we have seen an increase in mastectomies, prophylactic mastectomies in that setting overall. In the setting where the patient is not high risk, we've also seen prophylactic mastectomies on the side contralateral to their breast cancer. The situation with that ends up becoming a lot of women are now opting for that with the idea of decreasing their risk. But in the absence of actually having a genetic mutation, the risk of developing a contralateral breast cancer is only about 4% at 5 to 10 years. So we've been starting in terms of guidelines and recommendations to get away from those prophylactic mastectomies in the absence of a high-risk genetic predisposition because the morbidity actually outweighs the benefit that the woman gets. So that is something you can counsel your patients, talk to them about uh, the different pros and cons, and, and, and I'm sure that's very helpful as well. What about surgery with the intent to do reconstructive surgery afterwards? Is there a specific approach you have there when you're trying to, if you have to remove a significant percentage of the breast to try to rebuild it? Yeah, so it's very important to be working with a plastic surgeon who is sort of familiar with the oncologic aspect of this. And it's also very important to get an opinion up front from them. There are things that one has to consider. How close is that tumor to skin? Will that patient require radiation after reconstruction? There are varying opinions over whether or not radiation should be performed after different types of reconstruction. The situation becomes that you really have to know the practice patterns of your plastic surgeon so that you know whether or not they are willing, for instance, to put in expanders and implants before a patient undergoes radiation. Some plastic surgeons are and some plastic surgeons are not. So there is varying opinion about that, and you have to be cognizant of that when you look at the overall plan. Typically, though, all reconstruction types are possible in the setting of radiation, for instance. Chemotherapy and endocrine therapy are not really considerations when we talk about reconstruction. And so the radiotherapy aspect is really the only one did you really need to have a good conversation with your plastic surgeons about what the expectations are and the timing? For the primary care providers out there and for people who deal with breast cancer, see it in their patients, what steps do you suggest when they detect a suspicious lump or they find out they're on the front line and, and realize that there is breast cancer? How quick should they get to you? Do they go to the surgeon first? Is that what you would suggest? What's the best approach? So it really depends upon the level of comfort of the primary physician. Some primary care physicians actually do hundreds of breast examinations a week, are very comfortable with the exam, and are very confident with what they're feeling and whether or not there's a further workup that's needed. 
Others maybe don't do quite as frequent breast exams, and they may end up having different opinions regarding that as far as their comfort level and whether or not they want to send to somebody else for the workup. Basically, the situation is, I think that once you know your comfort level, it depends on whether or not you are comfortable doing that workup or not. I would say as a specialist, we are certainly always happy to receive referrals or to give assistance, whether it's verbally over the phone or anything else, in terms of what workup should be done. We very frequently get primary care physicians who will do the complete workup and then send the patient to us for care. So my best advice would be think about what it is that you're comfortable with. If you have a good dialogue with the specialist that you refer to or want to refer to, then maybe come to some sort of meeting of the minds in terms of when they should possibly refer to you, and then basically practice in that way. Dr. Richard Bleicher, I want to thank you for joining us on Primary Care today. I really appreciate your time. No problem, Brian. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. I want to thank you for listening to Primary Care today on ReachMD. If you did not catch all of this discussion, you can actually reach us and download our podcast on ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.